My wife is doing children's church uh, this morning, so I had to promise for a short sermon today. So you all get to benefit from that. Uh, If you have a copy of your scriptures, turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Uh, This morning we've come to the end of our time in 2 Corinthians, and uh, I don't know about you, but it's been rich. It certainly has been rich for me, and I hope uh, it has been for you as well. Uh, which would originally started out as what was going to be a six-week series last fall, uh, has morphed into a 13- or 14-week series with a break of Advent right in the middle, and that's because uh, there's just so much rich things to speak about in this letter. But this morning, we're to come to the very end, and we come to what I like to call, uh, at the end of Paul's letters, what I like to call the P.S. sections, the P.S. sections. Um, maybe you've written a letter before or an email. I know there's some generations that, that haven't written letters or emails, um, but maybe you've written a letter or an email and you get through writing it all and then you've forgotten something. And so you have to put that little PS at the very end uh, to include into that letter. And the truth is, often the PS sections are the best stuff in the letter, often the most personal stuff and the best stuff. And so when we come to the end of Paul's letters, all of them really, we find all sorts of PS content, lots of rapid fire uh, commands and greetings. And as a Christian teenager, I I particularly love the command here, we're not going to read it in our passage, but the command here that says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I remember as a Christian teenager walking around to find some cute girl that I could greet with a holy kiss. Uh, that's probably not exactly what Paul had in mind, but it was what my teenage mind thought at the moment. Uh, but there's more, than he, more here than just this, that imperative that we just mentioned, and so we're going to come to this sort of rapid-fire section at the end of Paul's letter. I'm going to be reading uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 11. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that When I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. 
comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. This is God's word. Lord, be with us as we reflect on your word here this morning, Father. Uh, We pray that um, as we spend time in your word, that your Holy Spirit would take it and uh, inspire our hearts and help us to see how these ancient truths have incredible relevance in the way we live our lives today, Lord, that, that these words truly are the words of life. So may we experience the life that they give this morning as we encounter you in your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So as you can tell, we've come to one of these PS sections, and sometimes it's, it's a little hard to preach on sections like this. Um, because much of what Paul says here feels a bit random or disjointed or rapid fire. Um, There's lots of personal details often in these sections as well, and because we don't know everything about the historical occasion, because we're only hearing one side of the discussion, because we don't know everything about the historical occasion, sometimes it's hard to know exactly what Paul is speaking about. We can't always piece it together. But I think if we look at this section in light of the entire book that we've looked at over the past couple of months, a few themes emerge. And the reality is it's all about the gospel. It's all about the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we look at our passage this morning, I want to see Paul's defense of the gospel. I want to see the truth of the gospel. And then finally, what is the outflow of this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. So let's start with Paul's defense of this gospel. And look at verse 10 for just a second. He writes this, For this reason I write these things while I am with you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. What is Paul talking about here? What's all this business about being severe when he is amongst them? Well, if you've been with us, you'll know that all throughout this letter, Paul is in a defense mode. Uh, The occasion in which this letter happened is that Paul planted the church in Corinth, and then he left to plant other churches. And after he left, rival leaders came into the church in Corinth, and they began to subvert Paul, subvert his authority, and subvert his teaching. They said that Paul's weakness and his suffering were a sign of God's displeasure. And what they're really saying is what theologians over the years have called uh, retributive theology. And it's been a common feature in prosperity preaching in Paul's day and prosperity preaching even all the way up today. And this essentially teaches that anytime we are blessed, it is a sign of God's favor. And that blessing always comes in health and wealth and prosperity. But if we're suffering, then that certainly means that we have done something to anger God. Suffering is a sign of God's displeasure. And so that's what these leaders taught. And so therefore, they enter into the church and they tell the Corinthian believers, look at Paul's life. Look at how much he has suffered. Look at how weak he is. That must mean that God hates him or that God is displeased by him. And so therefore, if he suffered so much and God hates him, then you really should not listen to him. You shouldn't listen to the words or the teachings that he spreads. 
After all, God's blessed, God is in blessing and he's in prosperity. His, he's present in strength and flash and robust spiritual experience. And Paul has none of those things. Therefore, you shouldn't listen to him. Now, Paul obviously heard these criticisms. And so he's been tackling this specific criticism all throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians and showing how all of this is very false. But these weren't the only criticisms that he was dealing with. Uh, You get a sense that these rival leaders had uh, blamed Paul for fiscal irresponsibility or taking financial advantage of other people. And that's sort of ironic because Paul points out the fact that actually these rival leaders are the ones who are fleecing the Corinthians of their money. And so the deceit of these rival leaders is insidious, and Paul is tackling it one by one. And so all throughout the book, he's on his defense. He has to defend his apostolic credentials. He has to defend his own finances and how he dealt with finances with the Corinthian church. He has to deal with his own authority over the Corinthian church. So he's having to defend himself every step of the way in this letter. But you don't get the sense that Paul is doing this. He isn't defending his ego. He isn't defending his reputation. He isn't even defending a wounded self-esteem that's come from all this. And that's pretty remarkable because I want you to think for a minute about the last time somebody criticized you. When was the last time somebody criticized you? And how did you respond to those criticisms? If you're like me, you probably got a little defensive. And if so, why is it that we get so defensive? Now, if you're like me, it's probably because you felt like your pride or your ego was a little wounded by these criticisms. It might be because you get your sense of value and your self-esteem from the approval of other people, and when that's gone, you've got to fight really hard in order to protect it. Might be because your reputation through these criticisms has taken a hit, and you care really deeply about your reputation and how all of it is groomed and manicured. I know that's at least why I often get defensive whenever I am criticized. But I don't think that's what Paul is doing here at all, because there seems to be no ego whatsoever in Paul's defense. Instead, he defends himself because he is sincerely concerned about the hearts of the Corinthian believers. But perhaps more than anything, he defends himself because he is concerned about the truth of the gospel. So that's really what Paul is defending here. He is defending the truth of the gospel. Look at verse 5. It says this. Paul encourages them to examine yourselves, to see whether you are in the faith, to test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? So Paul's talking about examining oneself. He's talking about testing oneself. What is he really getting at here? Well, I think sometimes we read this and we think that Paul is maybe trying to put an undue burden on the Corinthian church. 
maybe introducing them to uh, or leading them to doubt their own salvation in Jesus Christ or to doubt the, 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 the fact that they might be Christians or not. And maybe there is some of that that's going on here. Maybe there are some folks who are not Christians within the Corinthian church, and, and Paul really does want them to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. But I think what Paul's doing here is I think he's actually really talking to the Christians in the Corinthian church, the Christians who were saved by Jesus, but were now swayed towards embracing a different gospel. In fact, they were accepting and believing a false gospel that was taught by these rival teachers. And so Paul steps in and he tells them, examine yourselves. What is the gospel that you are believing here? Are you believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are you believing in something else that is false? And I think that's really what Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to wrestle with. And then by default, I think he encourages all Christians, Christians even like you and I who live 2,000 years later, to wrestle with, to ask these questions. Are we centering our lives around the truth of the gospel? Or are we centering our lives around some other good news, which really at the end of the day isn't very good news? Are we centering our lives around the gospel or around the materialism or the the individualism or the egotism that we see in the world all around us? As James K.A. Smith writes, what is our picture of the good life? What are we living for? Is it our life in Christ, or is it the world's definition of what the good life is really all about? As I read this passage this week, I couldn't help but think about an interesting story that Paul recounts in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, he tells the story about a time where he was with the apostle Peter in the city of Antioch. And in the early church, there were no two bigger names than Peter and Paul. And so in this story, Peter and Paul have gathered together in this church in the city of Antioch. And Paul talks about, he recounts this uh, instance where Peter felt perfectly free to eat with Gentiles until the Jewish elite showed up. And then once the Jewish elite showed up, all of a sudden Peter withdraws from eating with them. And he leads all the other Jews to withdraw from eating with the Gentiles as well for fear of the Jewish disapproval. And so the hypocrisy of all of this is palpable. And and Paul sees all this happening and he loses his mind. He says in Galatians 2 verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Don't miss what's happening here. Here, Paul is confronting Peter because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is what Paul is doing with the Corinthians here. He's saying, examine yourselves. He's saying, make sure you're not believing a false gospel. Make sure that your conduct is in line 
with the truth of the gospel. And so if that was a challenge for the Corinthian church, and as we saw, it was a challenge for uh, the Apostle Peter as well, then we certainly also ought to examine ourselves as well. Friends, you know this as well as I do, that there is no shortage of false truths and false gospels out in the world. And sadly, there's actually no shortage of false truths and false gospels within the church community as well. These things seep into the church as well. They're so common because this is the natural inclination of our fallen hearts. Our heart's default setting is to always wander away from the truth and not towards it. So if Paul wants us to examine ourselves, the question is, how do we know? What is this test? How do we examine ourselves to make sure we are in line with the truth of the gospel? When I think when it comes to this truth, we have to always be asking ourselves this question. Do I believe in a gospel of grace or am I living according to a gospel of works? Is the gospel I am believing in, is it a path to freedom or is it just a path to a new or different enslavement? Is the gospel I'm believing all about trust or is it about earning merit or earning reward? Do I believe that I am weak and only Jesus Christ is strong? So these are questions we need to ask ourselves. And then we have to say, when it comes to living out the gospel, we have to ask ourselves, do we look like Jesus? Do we look like Jesus? Do we look like our Savior? Look at verse 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You see, Paul's critics criticized him because of his weakness and his suffering. They said, therefore, because of Paul's weakness and suffering, he should not be trusted. And then Paul comes along and he concedes, I am weak, I have suffered, but those things are proof of the gospel. They are proof of God's presence in my life. I am weak, I have suffered, but the same can be said of my Savior Jesus Christ. You know, Paul really reiterates this same thing when he's writing to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Another way we could say that is all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will suffer. And so Paul says, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe. That's pretty black and white, isn't it? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, will suffer. Jesus promised the very same thing when he was on earth in John chapter 16, verse 33. And so Paul says, examine yourself. Do you look like Jesus? Does your life resemble him? Are you willing to boast in your weaknesses so that God's power can be manifest in you? Is your conduct in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so Paul talks about defending the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then finally he addresses the outflow 
of this gospel, what it looks like when it flows out of a life. And in verse 11, it says this. It says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You know, the Corinthian church had been through a lot. Paul dealt with all sorts of sins and immoralities with them that would make all of us blush. Uh, Sins and immoralities that he deals with in in the first letter to them in 1 Corinthians. They'd slipped into all sorts of abuses and immorality, and he writes this intense letter, and he dresses all of it. But their problems didn't end after that first letter, and that's why we have 2 Corinthians, because there were more problems in this poor Corinthian church. Obviously, when these rival leaders entered in, they had swayed a great many people who abandoned Paul as a result of their teaching. It really seems like only a small minority stayed faithful to Paul and stayed faithful to the gospel once these rival leaders came in. And so Paul, of course, confronts them, and some of those who had abandoned him repented. They turned from uh, walking away from the truth of the gospel, they repented, and they turned back to Paul. And so if you're keeping score, think about it this way. This church in Corinth, probably when Paul was writing this letter, was comprised of three types of people. The people who had abandoned Paul and were still abandoning him. Then they were comprised of people who had abandoned Paul but had repented and turned back towards him. And then it contained a third group of people that had actually never abandoned Paul in the first place. So three different types of people. And mind you, this probably wasn't a very big church to begin with. And yet it has all these three different types of people. So just imagine, just imagine the amount of divisiveness that must have existed in this small little church. And and Paul wasn't even there to sort of smooth it over by his own presence. And so Paul, knowing all this, writes to them and tells them to aim for restoration, to comfort one another, to agree with one another, and to live in peace. Friends, this is what the gospel does. The heart of the gospel is all about reconciliation and about restoration. It teaches us that we who are enemies of God have been reconciled to him. It tells us that we who have, been, have fallen and are condemned have been restored to a right relationship with God. All of this accomplished by a Savior who became weak, a Savior who gave up his life for you and I. And so, therefore, the outflow of this gospel ought to be reconciliation with one another. Now, friends, I don't have to tell you how divisive the world is in which we are living right now. I don't have to tell you that. All you have to do is watch the news, go on social media. This is perhaps the most divisive I feel like I've ever seen it. With every issue, lines are drawn. We're divided over politics. We're divided over COVID and and mass mandates and uh, vaccinations. 
We're divided over local policies to deal with crime and poverty and schools. We're divided over foreign policy. We are divided in every corner, and it feels like the world is pretty ugly because of how divisive everything truly is. And sadly, even this divisiveness is quick to seep in to the church throughout its history. Now, I'm not saying that we ought not to have convictions, that we ought not to have opinions, that we ought not to have affiliations. All those things are wonderful. But what the gospel does is it moves us to always aim for restoration and to live in peace with one another. See, the church has this incredible opportunity. It has this opportunity to be the most diverse and yet the most loving community in the world. And that's not because we erase differences or opinions or affiliations or perspectives. It's not because we erase differences, but because we are united by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, so much of our world's divisiveness has just led to anger and bitterness everywhere. Does it feel like that? That there's just anger and bitterness around every corner that you turn. We see it everywhere. But here, what do we see from Paul? We see a restoration and a peace that leads to joy. Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Isn't it interesting that Paul concludes this great letter that talks all about suffering and pain and sadness and all the things that come with it, he concludes this whole letter on suffering by talking about joy. By talking about joy. Only the true gospel does this. So I think the message is clear. Paul wants us to examine ourselves, to make sure our truth, the things that we're believing, and our lives are in conduct with the truth Of the gospel, because only the gospel moves us to boast in our weakness so that God's strength can be manifest. Only the gospel moves us towards peace and reconciliation and restoration. Only in the gospel are we able to find joy in the midst of our suffering. Let's pray.